All right, if you're not there, go ahead and turn with me to the book of John. Last week, we set the stage, if you will, for this conversation. The next couple of weeks, we're going to actually look at the conversation between Jesus and this woman from Samaria in the well. And he's going to make an offer to her that she can't refuse. It's, it's kind of the idea. And we're going to look at part one this week, part two next week. And we want to actually dive into this conversation. And remember, this was a divine appointment. In other words, God, uh, the, the God of the universe had put this on Jesus's calendar book from, from all time in the past. In fact, we saw even some of the language reflected that where there's this idea that it's been on his calendar. He needed to go there for this particular woman. Our mindset naturally says, well, if he has to go there for this particular woman, she must be pretty important. She must be a big thing. She must be really key to his ministry going forward. And what we find is we kind of navigate the details of it. You're like, I'm not even sure I would go visit this woman. You know, she was the outcast of society. And one of the things that's amazing as you were studying through and hopefully keeping the context in mind as we go through John is this fact that at the end of John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, we learn two things about Jesus Christ. He knows all men and he knows what's in all men. And we saw it illustrated in his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. And we're going to see it illustrated in his conversation with this woman in chapter 4. What's amazing is they're at two opposite ends of the social spectrum. What's also amazing is Jesus doesn't use a cookie-cutter approach for both of them. It's not this one cookie-cutter approach that works for everybody. He's very specific in what he's teaching. He's very specific in where he wants to go. But the one thing that remains true, Jesus Christ slices through the fluff, and he gets right to their greatest need. And he's going to do that with this woman as well. We'll see that. So as we kind of lead up, let's just have a couple of quick review points and build our way back up. Remember, Jesus needed to go through Samaria. That's what verse four told us. Now, there were other geographical routes. In fact, we looked at that last week. Here's that map. Jesus is down in Judea. He needs to go up to Galilee. And you can see Samaria is in between Judea and Galilee. So straight shot, makes sense, our natural mind. But what we don't know is because of the hostility between Samaritans and Jews, most Jews did this. They crossed up through Perea. They crossed over the Jordan River uh, to the east They went north up alongside the east side of the Jordan River, and then they jumped left into Galilee, all for the reason of avoiding Samaria. That's what many Jews of the day did because they didn't want to have interactions with the Samaritans. The hostility was that great. And so Jesus, again, is is setting this stage. He leaves a very successful ministry in, in the wilderness of Judea. He's baptizing people. The Pharisees catch wind of it, and to kind of not keep his ministry in their face and rush forward their animosity toward him, he leaves. But he doesn't go the roundabout way. He goes straight through Samaria, which sets up the stage for this appointment. Again, we talked about the hostility between Jews and Samaritans, well-documented. Go down to verse 9b. Uh, John gives us a editorial comment, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Remember, Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile, the product of the Assyrian captivity years ago where Assyria actually sent in some of their citizens to annihilate their culture, to intermarry with the Jews. And this was the product, the Samaritans. They had a long history of opposition. In fact, the hatred was so great, if you remember last week, that many rabbis of Jesus's day actually prayed to God that no Samaritan would be raised in the resurrection. And the idea is they damn them all to hell. (laughs) I don't want a Samaritan in heaven. 
And they would actually pray and ask God uh, for that, for God to answer that prayer. This is how much the hatred existed. So the fact that he was willing to go through, meet with this woman was, was truly remarkable based on that history. The other thing we learn about this woman from last week, and we'll learn more, she was a social outcast, even in her own culture. But she had four strikes against her. And for all you baseball fans, how many strikes puts you out? Three. I mean, she had four. All right, so this is worse. This is worse than that. I'm sure there's a Braves joke in there somewhere. I'm just going to leave it. I'm going to leave it be. Here's the strike she had against her. Wrong gender. Really a problem. Women were second-class citizens in that society. Praise God for the word of God. Praise God for the church of Jesus Christ. That actually elevated women and their worth and value in the world. If, contrary to popular belief today, as the Christians are the problem and the Bible's the problem, and no, not true. History tells us otherwise. But she was the wrong gender. She was the wrong race. She was a Samaritan. We're going to see next week, we won't quite get into this this week, she holds to a wrong religious system. And we're going to get an indicator this morning that she lives a wrong lifestyle. In fact, the very fact that she's coming to draw water at the hottest part of the day by herself, tells us a lot about this woman. She was rejected. She was a woman who had been rejected. Nobody cares about her. Nobody wants anything to do with her. And here's the son of God (laughs) taking a break from his busy ministry coming directly for her at this well. And it ought to speak volumes about the love of our dear Savior You know, she is the opposite of Nicodemus in every way. And we'll kind of see that borne out. One of the things we saw in the the lead up is that God orchestrated this meeting to get Jesus and her alone. And she may have seen Jesus and his disciples at the well and said, ah, forget it. I'll go another day. But since it was one guy, she said, I'll just go there, probably ignore him, get my water and leave. So he sets this up. The disciples are off in Samaria grabbing some food. And so we see that Jesus engages her in conversation. He asks her for a drink. She responds in shock. Again, to speak to a woman in this culture was a cultural taboo. It wasn't wrong according to God's word. It wasn't like Jesus was sinning. He just was going against cultural taboos and uh, uh, proprieties here, if you will. We also learn in verse 9 that if you drank from a woman, this is kind of what John's comment is at the end of verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The idea is that if you drank from the same cup as a Samaritan, Jewish, the Jewish mindset is you are ceremonially unclean. That's going to make you unclean, unable to worship in the temple until some time has passed. And so she's super surprised. Remember, she's, she's shocked. And, and in verse 9, she's like, don't you know? I'm confused. <laughs> don't you know that you're a Jew? Don't you know that you're a man? Don't you know that I'm a woman? And not only a woman, I'm a Samaritan. I mean, she, she's putting all the cultural taboos together. She's like, this guy shouldn't be talking to me. This is really weird. She's kind of shocked by this. And as I said last week, and I think it's a good lead into this morning, what she doesn't realize at this point, she thinks that Jesus is asking her for a drink because he's thirsty. He's really asking her for a drink because she's thirsty. She doesn't know it yet. That's exactly what he's doing here. And we're going to see that as we... Go forward. In fact, there's a couple of things that she doesn't know um, by implication in verse 10. Let's read verse 10 together. Jesus answered, answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, it's interesting 
Because right away, Jesus, you can see, he's doing what he did with Nicodemus. Nicodemus shows up. Jesus just takes the conversation and, and, and rides that train exactly where he wants it to go. He doesn't address her, con, uh, her question, why was, she asking, uh, why was he asking her for a drink? He shifts gears. He talks about right away what he wants to talk about, which is eternal life, her greatest need. And, and it's just so fascinating to watch. It's, it's a similar approach to Nicodemus. The idea is let's not waste time. Let's get to the heart of what you need. And he's right on top of it, right from the get-go. And he says, basically implies, there's a couple things you don't know. The word is, uh, the Greek word is oida. It means to know intuitively or instinctively. In fact, the word is used uh, in the perfect tense. It, the, the idea is that she didn't know something intuitively in the past, and she remains in a state of lack of knowing in the present. There's some things she just doesn't know. He's going to spell that out for us, but that something, in quotation marks, specifically was her knowledge of spiritual things involving the Messiah and what he wanted to provide for her. These are the things that she didn't know, and he wants to explain that to her. And what's kind of funny, uh, as, you, as you know where Jesus is going, you know, she, he asked her for a drink. She's shocked by that. And Jesus almost under his breath says, you know what? You'd be even more shocked if you knew who I was. <laughs> it's kind of the implication here. And so there's a couple of things that she doesn't know. And the first is, is really simply put is she doesn't know the gift of God. You see that in verse 10? If you knew the gift of God, and the implication is you don't, you don't know the gift of God. Some of you are here and you're going to be like, why is he defining gift? Everybody in the world knows what a gift is. You'd be surprised there are people in the world that don't know what a gift is. They completely teach the opposite in their biblical teaching about what a gift is. What is a gift by definition? Something that's freely given without cost, without obligation of repayment. Now, I'm going to date some of you in this room. Because who remembers the layaway plan at department stores? Raise your hand. Okay. The young people are like, what is he talking about? The layaway plan. Before credit cards, you wanted something you couldn't afford. You went to JCPenney or Sears or whoever. And you said, I want to buy this. You signed a contract and you made payments on it for X amount of months. And when you were done making payments, guess what? You got to go get the thing you were waiting for. It actually taught patience. It taught financial responsibility. Wasn't a bad system. But I'm here to tell you that gifts are not the same thing as the layaway plan. That's not a gift. If I was to give you a gift of an iPad and say, here's a gift, I'm giving it to you freely, but you've got to pay me $40 a month for the next 10 months. You're right away, you're like, something just went haywire there. <laughs> I thought this was a gift. Gifts are supposed to be free. Gifts are given with no strings attached. In fact, if I give you a gift that I take away from you later because of some fault that you, you did, was that ever a gift? By definition, it's not a gift. We understand this in Christmas. It's a gift, and one other comment on the gift, and then we'll kind of move on to the next point. A gift is something that is free to you, but costs somebody else the full price. Somebody else paid for it, you know, in our day, they might have paid for it with a five-finger discount. You know what that is, right? But, but literally, they paid for the gift. They can offer it to you for free. What's really fascinating, she doesn't understand the gift of God. Most people, most unbelievers don't understand the gift of God. They think there's something they've got to do, negotiate, bargain with God in order to get 
salvation. And what we're going to see from the word of God is that the gift of God that Jesus describes here is spelled out in verse 14. It is living water springing up into everlasting life. And what that tells us is simply this, that God wants to offer you eternal life as a free gift because Jesus paid it all. That's how this works. And the second you throw your little dollar bill on the table, your penny on the table, your $100 bill, I don't care how much you think it's worth, it is worth way more than you think it is by your minor contribution. Because either Jesus paid it all, which means there's nothing left for me to pay or merit or earn or contribute, or he didn't. And so now you got a choice. Am I going to trust what Jesus said or am I going to trust my own thoughts about how this fits together? Now, we can talk about behavior all you want, but behavior doesn't pay the penalty of sin. It will never pay the penalty of sin. It doesn't say, in fact, let me pull up the verse. It doesn't say the wages of sin is good behavior from the time you realize the gospel forward. It says the wages of sin is death. And last I checked 2,000 years ago, someone died for me. That's the payment. That was the day in human history that my sin debt was paid in full. And guess what? I've got good news for you here today. It's not because I'm a pastor that my sin debt is paid in full. My mom's in the back row. She could tell you some whopper stories about me. Okay? So could my wife. She's up here almost in the front row. That's not the reason why. I didn't deserve that. God has set it up that way. And so the good news is Jesus died for your sins 2,000 years ago too. He paid your debt in full 2,000 years ago too. That's why the last words he screamed from the cross is, it is finished, paid in full, tetelestai, which we've got free bracelets back there. Take as many as you want because we want you as you go throughout your week to remind yourself that even though you mess up and screw up and don't do things perfectly, you got a savior that did. And we want you to look at that and just enjoy that message. By the way, back to the text, the gift of God is what? Look at Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Just keep the definition of gift that we were all giggling about earlier because that's what it means here too. It's a gift. He paid it in full. You get it for free. Nothing required of you, except as we're going to see in this passage, you've got a drink of it, which is just an illustration of believing. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. This is one of the things that she didn't know. The other thing that she doesn't know is who says to you, give me a drink. She doesn't know the identity of the giver, let alone what the giver wants to give her. She doesn't know who he is. In fact, Jesus, as we're going to see later in this verse, he's the one that gives the living water. So it's really interesting. I'm going to ask you to do a math equation with me. Just relax. I'm going to walk you through this. This isn't going to be a hard math equation. But if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals what? C, yes. I used to have students say D? No. (laughs) That wasn't part of the equation. So what it tells us is this. If you knew the gift of God, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see the connection? Eternal life's the gift of God. Jesus is the giver of this gift. Therefore, Jesus is God. See the connection? Now, this shouldn't shock us by the time we get to John 4, because we've already heard John just rattling on about Jesus Christ and how awesome he is and how the fact that he's God. 
Shouldn't shock us, but it's even built in here in terms of what he's saying. And I don't think she picked that up. One day he's going to give, you know, further in this one day, in this conversation, uh, one day for us, it'll be next week. But he's going to give in this conversation his identity. Look down in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, am who? We'll look at the verse right above that. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. So he's going to confirm his identity for her. At, at some point. But he's saying, if you knew these things, implied you don't. You don't understand the gift of God. You don't understand who I am. Those are the two areas that she lacks knowledge. But he's gonna say, if you knew these things, let me tell you what you'd be doing right now. If you actually understood who's speaking to you and what I'm offering, let me tell you what you'd be doing right now. And he clearly says, you'd be begging for it. You, you would be on your knees you would be taking the position of an inferior to a superior. You would be, uh, this word has this intensity, this urgency built into it. It's the idea you would be begging and pleading and you wouldn't let me go until you got it is kind of the idea expressed in this word. If, if you knew these two things, this would be your response. Again, my identity, what I'm able to offer, you would desire it greatly to the point of just begging for it Continually. Now, one of the great things that we see about this passage is this. Jesus isn't going to say, now on your knees. Start begging for it. Let me see the tears. Let me see the remorse. Let me see the sorrow. Mm, That was only 30 seconds. Keep going. No, he doesn't do any of that. He's just saying, if you knew, this would be your response. But notice what he's going to do. She doesn't need to beg for anything. You know why she doesn't need to beg for anything? Because the gift of eternal life is a gift. It's freely given. She's not going to earn anything by begging for it. He wants her to drink of it freely. That's what we're going to see the offer to her is. Not do all this, do 400 spiritual push-ups, do 400 spiritual laps around the church, right? That's not the message at all. It's drink of what I'm offering you. And the point is, is this, you know, you don't have to <laughs> beg me for it. I'm offering it to you freely. It's a free gift. You don't have to earn it or do anything about it. You know, one of the things that we're going to see in this passage, and we'll bring this out multiple times, drinking of, this, of the water that Jesus is offering is just an illustration of believing. John 3, 14, he used another illustration for believing. It was looking, looking at the pole, the serpent on the pole in the wilderness, Moses. That was John 3, 14. Uses looking as an illustration. When we get to John 6, he's going to use eating as an illustration of believing. So he uses lots of illustrations to represent believing. John 6, 35 really connects those two concepts. Jesus is going to say, I, and, and set, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And so you see, he kind of uses this idea of drinking living water Believing in him, the result being never thirsting, kind of connects those two. So this is just uh, illustrative. Uh, This drinking of water is illustrative of believing or trusting in him. And this is why he says, and if you will do that, he would have given you living water. Uh, Given again means to give of one's own accord and goodwill. Living water, uh, again, defined later, we'll see this play out. Once you drink it, you never thirst again. Once you possess it, you never thirst again. So there's some eternality about this living water that we're going to see. And just like Nicodemus, this woman's going to miss the point, okay? 
And, and, and Jesus is patient with her. He's lovingly patient with her, and he's going to keep going forward. He's going to keep chipping away at her confusion. We're going to see that she remains confused, and then at some point, Jesus shifts methodology, and he, and he, and he kind of comes at her on a more personal level to get her attention. She doesn't get it. Jesus keeps chip, chipping away. And so let's look at her confusion. When we get to verse uh, 11 and 12, she's going to ask Jesus two questions here. And I want you to notice as we read through this, the two questions are directly related to his identity and the gift. Okay, so she does pick up those two things that Jesus says she doesn't know, and she addresses those in this way. Verse 11 and 12, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Question number one. And then are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And so again, these are the two questions and directly related to the two areas Jesus said she lacked knowledge of, the gift of God and his identity. First question, you've got nothing to draw with. The idea is like, you're offering me living water. You can't even get water out of this well. Like, where are you going to get this living water from? How are you going to how are you going to draw that? She's, again, she's thinking, you know, you don't even have the proper tools. You're asking me for a drink because you didn't even have the proper tools for this well. How are you going to offer me something better than this? So you can, you can see she's, bless her heart, right? That's a Georgia, that's a Southern thing, right? Bless her heart. She's thinking on a horizontal plane. She's, she's still thinking horizontally. Same with Nicodemus. Nicodemus well, I, I got to climb back in my mother's womb, right? And it's like, horizontal, just not thinking. So Jesus keeps working with her, but this is her first question. And again, she took his words literally. She, you're going to see that as Jesus responds, she's still going to be confused when you get down to verse 15. She's still not going to quite get it. And we'll see that at that point, Jesus changes tactics a little bit. Now, this question here, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? This word greater means large or great in size or stature, large in reputation. Are you more important than Jacob? She's, she, you, you're saying you got better water than he did? It, you know, this is kind of the implication. In fact, the, the way the question is, is phrased in the Greek, it expects a negative answer. You're, surely you're not greater than Jacob. There's no way you're greater than Jacob. It's kind of the, the implication, how it's kind of phrased in the Greek language. And... and what she didn't realize is clearly Jesus was greater than Jacob. He created Jacob, right? He even beat Jacob in a wrestling match, you know, the first WrestleMania. You know, he took Jacob down. I mean, he's, he's clearly better than Jacob. She doesn't realize that at this point. She's like, there's no way you're better than Jacob. And the implication, she kind of includes, he drank from himself as well as his sons and his livestock. The implication is this well has been here for 2,000 years and it's never run dry. Remember John last week, it kind of indicated the way he worded it. There's, there's probably a natural fed spring that fed this well from underneath because it just never ran, had never run dry. And then she also says it also, you know, watered his sons and watered his livestock. And the in indication is this is a vast water supply. And you're telling me you got something better than this? So this is, these are his questions. Again, she's thinking horizontally. Now, I love what Jesus does here in verse 13. And I love that picture because he's going to meet her where she's at. This is, this is the way God works. He, he stoops, he condescends, 
He, he bends down as if a, 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 an adult bending down to come to the level of a child to explain and connect the dots. And he's, and he's doing that with her here very tenderly, I believe, as he's trying to connect her to what he's trying to say. Verses 13 through 14 read this. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And, and again, Jesus, I think, senses her confusion. She's very horizontal in her thinking. And so what, he, what does he do? I think in that first phrase in verse 13, he points to the well. She, she's occupied with that well. And he says, you know what? This well right here, the one you're, you keep talking about, You'll drink from there and you're going to thirst again. And then notice the contrast in verse 14. It's the word but. And that's, that's going to be huge. We'll make a point on that here. But what, he's, what he says is, whoever goes on drinking of this water will go on thirsting again. Right? That's true for all of us, by the way. It's true for Jesus and his earthly ministry. This is why he's at the well in the first place. Right? He was wearied from this hike. He's taking, he wants a drink. He needs that for his physical body. So this is true of any physical water source. Eventually, you're going to run dry. Eventually, you're going to need another drink. But you get the word but there, and it provides this huge contrast. And I love it. It's just such a great principle of the word of God. When Jesus is introduced in the equation, everything changes. Everything gets blown up. Everything becomes possible that was never possible before. And this is exactly what he's saying here. This, this incredible contrast. This well right here, you'll drink of it, you'll thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, what's the promise there? Will never thirst. And then there's a reason given for that. We want to look at that. Whoever, by the way, means there's no exceptions. Even this woman could drink from this water. Even this woman could receive the gift of God. Even this woman could benefit from what Jesus was offering, even this woman. And by the way, if she could do it, she could benefit from it, you can benefit from it. You're not too far gone. In fact, the apostle Paul refers to himself as, as Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So even if you sit here today and you think you're a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner, welcome to a group of dirty, rotten, filthy sinners. And quite frankly, someone's already got the number one pole position there. His name's Apostle Paul. She's probably number two, as we're going to see. So you're definitely under them. The gift of God's available to whoever. That's the point of what he's saying here. And as we'll see, drinking of living water is just synonymous for believing in Jesus for eternal life. In fact, we see this other passage. I'm going to come to this a couple times. This passage in John 7 is actually really helpful to our conversation this morning. It's going to illustrate a couple of things. I've just kind of highlighted the emphasis here, and then we'll come back to it later. But Jesus, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We're going to come back to verse 39 later. It's, it's there, but we're going to come back for another point here in a second. But let's look a little bit closer at the nature and the duration of, of this drink that Jesus describes, which is, again is illustrative of 
believing. Remember the illustration Jesus used in John 3 for believing? It was what they did in the, in the wilderness when they looked at the bronze serpent. And what happened when they looked at the bronze serpent? They were immediately healed. Did they have to keep looking at the bronze serpent the rest of their life everywhere they went to stay healed? No, that's, there's no indication of that in the Old Testament. They looked and they were healed. And Jesus says, just like that happened, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in him looks at him by faith. That's the illustration. One-time moment of faith, immediate benefit from what he accomplished. And so we're going to see that here with this drinking water because in this passage, Jesus switches to an aorist tense for the verb drinking here, indicating that it's a one-time drink he's talking about. That the moment you drink, look at the promises, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, really clearly, because this can be abused sometimes, just the presence of the aorist tense doesn't indicate that it's a one-time moment or a one-time drink. But what does indicate it is the combination of the aorist tense with the context. The context is key, but it's also interesting that it's in the aorist tense because as we're going to see in the next few phrases, his entire emphasis with her, pick this up. This is the context. I've got water that when you drink, you'll never thirst again. If he was saying, I've got water you can drink, you'll never thirst again, but you're going to have to keep drinking. She'd be like, I'm going to stick with this water. (laughs) It's what I do all the time anyways. His emphasis is you're going to drink once. You'll never have to drink again. You'll never thirst again. This is something that's eternal. It's got eternal results. And so again, what are the results? Well, we see this uh, as we've looked at two results. Again, notice two, just as you look at verse 14, twice it's mentioned that Jesus is the one who gives this living water. He's the giver of this gift. And John records a phrase used by Jesus here, will never thirst. Now, that right there is pretty clear in and of itself. What's really fascinating is Jesus uses a phrase here that he's going to use 13 times in this gospel. And and I've got it there in the Greek. It's ice tone Iona. Ice tone Iona. Ice meaning into. Tone Iona, the ages. Okay? So never is a good translation. It's a Um, you know, it's a negated, it's negated here. So never is a good translation, but you know what? If we were to really try to give this the thrust that it was saying, it's stronger than that. It's stronger than just never. And and what he's literally saying, or we could literally translate it into the age, it's negated. It means never will this person be thirsty or be dry into the age of future time. That's how we would just... (laughs) flesh the meaning out a little bit more. I mean, never is a good translation, but can you see it goes further than that? Into the ages, they'll never thirst again if they drink of this water in this moment. Now, why could Jesus say this so emphatically? Well, why had Jacob's well never run dry? Because there was a spring feeding it. There was a spring feeding it. What is the spring that feeds and guarantees Jesus's promises here We're going to see it in verse 14. This water, this living water will become, notice this, where? In him, in the person who drinks. In him, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Will become means to begin to be or to come into existence 
Future middle indicative. The point is this, when you see a future indicative in the Bible, guaranteed promise. It's a mood of reality. It's the mood of fact. He's guaranteeing that this is what's going to happen in this person who drinks. So what will they become or what will they begin to be? Well, a fountain of water. Fountain means a a source flowing onto the surface or into a pool somewhat below ground level. It says it's going to be springing up, bubbling up, popping up, jumping up. The idea is that it's this ongoing source of water that's never going to run out. That's why this person will never thirst again. This is going to be in them. As you see, it's going to be a never-ending source of water. Now, I mentioned this a second ago, but notice where this water is springing up or bubbling up. It's in him. It's in the one taking the drink. It's in the one believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? And this is why we're going to go back to John 7 now. I believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit, who is, by the way, eternal life himself. We know John 14, 6. Well, we've quoted that. We cross-stitch it, right? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But you know what? All, All members of the Godhead are life. They possess life themselves. And so now the Spirit of God indwelling the believer, as we're going to read about in John 7, becomes this source or fountain of living water that never ceases. John 7, 37 through 39, again, emphasizing a different part of this verse now. But on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart. Where's your heart? In you, right? It's, it's in the person. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this is what I love about the apostle John. I love about his book. Now he provides us with an editorial comment. Because if he doesn't provide us with verse 39, we, we'd be debating this to this day, right? What's he talking about here? Here's he tells us. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And see the person who takes a drink of this living water will have this undergirding source never to thirst again because the spirit of God will indwell them. Now this is incredible truth he's sharing with a Samaritan woman that he develops further in the, in the New Testament epistles. But it's, it's all right here in seed form. And so he's talking some deep level spiritual truth here. And so, you know what? When you look at her response in verse 15, she's kind of pumped. Like you see her response. She's like, I'm in. I love it. She's like, give me this water. But she still doesn't get it. She, she's still missing it, right? She's, she's still not completely with him because she's still thinking in physical terms. And this is what we're going to see borne out in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Give is is a command here. (laughs) She's like, okay, I'll take it. I'm sold. Give it to me. So I don't have to, and, and, and you could just see her. I mean, if we could see body language, right? And hand motion, she's probably saying, give me this water. So I don't have to come here pointing at this well to draw anymore. So she's still missing the full connection here. Obviously, she's got a couple of reasons here. By the way, uh, before we go on, you you notice that she doesn't mention eternal life? She just kind of just jumped right over that whole conversation. She she's like, I I like the fact that I'm not, I'm never gonna thirst again. I don't, I I hate coming to this well. 
The thought of never being thirsty again, I like. I'm in. The thought of never coming to this well, I'm doubly in, right? Because when you come to the well, you never had to work so hard for water in your life. Yeah, I remember a few months ago, our, our water company was doing some testing and they were, they were like, hey, there's going to be some orange stuff in your water. Um, it's safe to drink. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like we'll just, they will wait until it gets out of the water. But you know, you just, it just dawns on you as an American, you're so used to just flipping a faucet and just as much as you want, right? We're just so used to that. Even talking about the widows in Kenya, understanding that they've got wells every day that they've got to go down and, and drag up. You imagine this, this woman here taking a, an empty water pot from her home all the way to the well. We don't know how far she lived away from the well. Could have been close, could have been miles. Dragging this empty water pot, dragging this water up from a well. Many archaeologists feel like Jacob's well is 100 to 150 feet deep, you know, dragging this water all the way up, filling your water pot. And then the hard part, taking that full water pot home, wherever she came from. So she's like, you know what? I'm in. I don't understand exactly what you're talking about, but I am in, right? Physical mindset, horizontal mindset. So she's still missing the point. Jesus says, go, oh, you stupid Samaritan woman. You know, I'm just done with you. This was a waste of time. I'm going to go meet with someone else now. No, he graciously keeps working with her. He graciously does something. Now, now it may seem rude, but I think he's adjusting tactics to get her attention. Because I think what he's going to do is if she knows who I am, if she understands who I am, then it's going to help her understand what I'm offering. And so he's going to do something that's going to help draw her in to his identity. And he's going to get personal with her. He's he's going to talk about something that no one would know about her unless they knew her not some stranger she just started talking to at the well. And it's going to create this curiosity in her to probably listen a little bit more closely to what he's saying. So he switches gears a little bit, I think, to get her attention, and he gets personal. So we see this in verses 16 through 18. Let's read it. Jesus says uh, to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. Jesus now jumps back into what would be culturally appropriate. Again, not necessarily sinful that if he would have done this, but he goes back to a cultural propriety, and that is this. If he is a man and he wants to give a woman something, he would need to do that with her husband present. So he's been saying, I want to give you life. She's like, all right, give it to me. He's like, she's still not getting it. Okay, go call your husband and I'll give it to you. It's kind of the, the implication. But he's doing that for a reason. Um, and you could imagine uh, the social misunderstandings. Uh, and I won't go into the deal. We got kids here. But I mean, the social misunderstandings that could happen. A, a man gives a woman a gift, right? They're just like, oh, what, why is he doing that? That's a, little, that's a little shady. She says, hey, go get your husband. He jumps back into this cultural propriety. And this comment, as you can see, it probably put her on edge considering her history. It hit, a, it hit a sore spot. It hit a probably an open wound in her thinking. And what we see is she, Jesus is kind of, uh, kind of I think, amused by her response. He's like, wow, that's pretty clever. <laughs> that's a pretty clever way of answering that, even though she didn't give the full truth. And, and he knows 
at this point that her answer does not reveal her tangled domestic life. He knows this is kind of, she's trying to put him off. It's kind of an incomplete answer. And so she gives this truthful answer. What's interesting is because of what Jesus knows now. Now, you can make an argument before that Jesus hasn't been using his omniscience, but he uses it here. And now that he knows for sure what this woman is like, why doesn't he just leave her? Why does he say, ooh, man, I didn't know she was this bad. Ooh, I didn't know about those skeletons in the closet. I didn't know how awful and licentious she was. I, remember how I told you that's a free gift? No, no, I'm going to have to require something from you now. It's just, you know, I didn't know it was that bad. He doesn't do that. He just keeps moving on with the conversation. Nothing scares Jesus Christ away. No sinners beyond reach for the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world to save sinners, not good sinners. There's not a good sinner that exists. All sinners are evil and wicked and filthy and undeserving of heaven. Heaven is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty. And we've got to remember that he doesn't change his approach with her. He continues to pursue this woman. And in fact, it ought to spark in our mind. He is offering this woman, this type of woman, the gift of eternal life. And if he can offer it to her, he can offer it to you. That's the implication we should take away from this, I believe. And so Jesus, uh, you know, he says, you've well said, I have no husband for you've had five. And the one whom you now have, the one you're living with is the implication is not your husband and that you spoke truly. The fact that he knew her past, knew her private personal interests, just absolutely blew her mind. And so again, he recognizes the cleverness of her answer, realizes though she didn't quite tell the full story. And I think he's kind of amused a little bit. Wow, that was pretty clever. But you know, here's the real, here's the real deal. To say I have no husband, uh, again, doesn't give us the full story. She's, you can tell the way she answers, she's ashamed. She's very ashamed. She, she doesn't want Jesus to know. And in, and in her mind, maybe it's not even his business to know. But what she doesn't know is across from the well is a man who knows all men and knows what's in all men. She just didn't know that. She's going to find out. I mean, she found out because of what he said. And again, he knows much more about her than she realized. And, and that must have been very disconcerting. You know, if someone knows things about you, you're almost like, ooh, what else does he know? <laughs> He's brought that out to light. What else does he understand? And he tells her, you've had five husbands. And culturally, it's very important to see. It, it, it either means that she was written a bill of divorcement five times, or she even potentially lost some of her husbands to death. We don't really know. The text doesn't tell us. A lot of people assume that it's, it's five of the same thing here and there. But just to put it in perspective, if, you know, if, I don't think she lost five husbands by death. Because I don't, there's no shame in that. You know, that's, that, in fact, she would, she would deserve pity. She might even share that with Jesus. I don't have husbands. I've lost five of them to death. Now, they might want to check her chili, but that's a whole dis- different discussion. You know, if she's five husbands have died on her. All joke. That's a joke. Sorry. Bad joke. So at least some of these husbands had probably written her a bill of a divorcement. Here's what's really interesting about the culture. Do you know that women could not initiate divorce in this culture? So if, if this woman even has multiple divorces in this, situa- in this situation, it's because a man out there had rejected her and said, enough, I've had enough of you, go. And when you divorced a woman in this society, you were basically casting her out to the dogs 
to fend for herself. She was very vulnerable in that state. And for this to happen multiple times, can you imagine the level of rejection and shame that this woman must have felt? Now that Jesus has simply pointed that out, if it was all five of them, wow. (laughs) And so she's like, yeah, she's not gonna get married. This guy that's living with her, he's like, I'm not gonna marry her. She's been divorced five times or she's had five husbands. You know, I'll, I'll maybe take care of her but I'm I'm not gonna marry this woman. So you can just see the level of rejection that this woman is feeling and the shame that she was burdened with. Again, it's hard to speculate why she did. Could have been due to the lifestyle she lived. She could have been at fault. We don't don't know, but there's a shame obviously involved. She was a cast off and outcast in society. And so I, I love her response in verse 19. It's the understatement of the year. For sure. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You think? That, that's pretty safe to maybe say. He just told you something that no one would have known on a very personal level. And so she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. This word perceive means that she's, she's looking at him closely. She's, well, this is interesting here. I, I think you might be a prophet. You know, she's, because she, he's told her something that only someone who knew her would know. So she's really paying attention now. And I think why Jesus started down this road is now to grab her attention. He wants to draw her to the fact of who he is, what his identity is, because then the gift is going to mean that much more if she knows who he is. And so we start down this road. It's pretty incredible. She was impressed because it was pinpoint. It wasn't like, oh yeah, you've had multiple husbands before. Now the one you're with is not a husband. No, he's like, you've had five. One, two, three. He probably could have named them, you know, Jimmy, Bobby, Daniel. I, he probably could have listed them, right? That much detail, this pinpoint accuracy, and, and it probably made her uncomfortable. What else does this guy know? You ever had someone do that to you? You tell you something about yourself that you didn't think anyone else knew, and you're like, how did they know that? This makes you a little, it's a little disconcerting. So she's in this. She's like, hey, I perceive that you're a prophet. And, and to be able to do this, she reckoned, he's got to be someone who's getting direct revelation from God. So she's just in her thinking elevated this man to a, to a different level than, than the entire conversation has been going so far. She, before she's like, are, are you greater than Jacob? I seriously doubt it. Now she's like, hmm, maybe this, maybe this guy's a prophet. You know, so she, her, her wheels are turning. In fact, how else would he be able to know these things? Now there's something even more significant culturally. And we'll, we'll kind of get into her religion a little bit next week. We're going to kind of finish up right here. But let me just say this, that for the Samaritans, they only received the Pentateuch as the word of God. In other words, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That was the word of God. Nothing past that was the word of God. Nothing past that was canonical. And so for the Samaritan, the last prophet that they recognized was Moses, right? Moses gives the, the, the repeating of the law in Deuteronomy. He dies in Deuteronomy. That's the last prophet they recognize, except for one prophet that Moses pointed to in Deuteronomy 18 and said, there's gonna be a prophet that comes after me. And when he comes, you need to listen to him. And so Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18, you can read that section if you want. I just grabbed those two verses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst from your brethren, him you shall hear. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. 
So the significance of what she's saying right here, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. She's entering the realm of messianic speculation right here for a Samaritan. Are you the prophet? Maybe, 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 I don't know. She's starting to speculate. Is this the prophet that Moses was pointing to here? Because this guy, as we're going to see later, she goes home and what's her testimony? Come meet a man that told me everything about myself, right? Everything about myself. Could he be the Messiah? That's going to be her testimony when she leaves this conversation. And so she's on the right track. And that's kind of why I think this is significant. Verse 19, she's kind of on the right track. Uh, her mind is starting to be open to, to who this man is and what he's, he's saying he provides. But next week, she's going to realize the truth. Next week in our study, she's going to realize the truth. He's more than a prophet. He's the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He's the Messiah. And she's going to see that as we close out that conversation next week. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I, I thank you for your heart as it just, at least this morning, looking at this passage, it just, it bleeds off the page. Your heart bleeds off the page for sinners and those unworthy of heaven. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you for that. I thank you for that in my own personal life. I thank you for that in the lives of those represented here this morning, the, the lives of those who live in this world, that you demonstrated your love for us and sending Christ to die for us in our place on our behalf. Just love to see that consistency as you are so patient and gracious and loving, working your way through this conversation with this woman from Samaria. And we're just uh, so grateful for you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.